Hey, let's grab our Bibles this morning and go to the Gospel of Matthew in the 8th chapter. While you're turning there, I want to welcome all the folks who are joining us online today. It's always wonderful to greet you into our service. And I also want to just uh, mention that it's, it's on this made-to-worship weekend that I am reminded of how thankful I am to have Brian Tabor as our worship and arts pa- uh, pastor and how thankful I am for the many incredibly gifted people that God has blessed us with here at Mount Pleasant. I hope that you agree with that this morning. And I want to, yeah, you can celebrate that. And I want to remind you that tonight here in the worship center at 6 o'clock, we have a special event planned. Uh, Brian and Kim Tabor have recently released a new CD called I Found Freedom, and we have a CD release concert tonight at 6 o'clock, and we'd love to have you come back and join us for that. Last week when we came together to worship, we rejoined our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew, and as we did, I introduced to you Uh, the third section of Matthew's gospel, the third section at least according to the way that I've broken it down for our study. The third section is Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, and I'm calling that part of Matthew's gospel glimpses of greatness because what we see in those chapters is Jesus doing great things and Jesus calling his followers to embrace a greater life. In the first four chapters of Matthew, we see that Jesus was destined for greatness. In Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we see that Jesus was a great teacher. And so we just continue that theme of greatness as we move deeper into our study. Last week, we looked at Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17, and we saw Jesus doing great things because we saw him heal three people. We saw him heal a leper. We saw him heal the centurion's servant, and we saw him heal Peter's mother-in-law. This morning, as we look at this new passage, we're going to see Jesus calling his followers, and in so doing, calling, calling us to embrace a greater life. When I first put my preaching calendar together for 2017, and I outlined my sermons for the year, my intent was to talk about Matthew 8, verses 18 through 34, all in one message called Taking Jesus Seriously. I was going to do something similar to what I did last week. It's a lengthy passage of Scripture, but I was going to look at the different events that happened in those verses and then make some applications that we could take home with us. But since this is our made-to-worship weekend and I have a little less time than normal, I'm going to break this message down into two parts. There are four things that I want to talk about in this passage. I'm going to talk about two of them today, and I'm going to talk about the other two next week. So if you've got your Bibles open there to Matthew chapter 8, then I want to ask you to go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word like we always do. You're a guest this morning. We're so thankful to have you in our service, and I'll just tell you that this is what we do every week. We make the public reading of Scripture a significant part of our service, and because we have such reverence and respect for God's Word, we stand together when we do it. It's a very brief passage. You follow along this morning as I read Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Here is what Jesus says, or here is what Matthew records, rather. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Here's a simple truth that I want you to remember right from the beginning 
when it comes to this message and this passage of Scripture. No one lives a great life by accident. No one lives a great life by accident. Great leaders don't get that way just by going through the motions, by never embracing change, by never taking any risks, and by trying to please all the people all the time. Great marriages don't happen just because husbands and wives settle into some kind of an equitable living arrangement. I'll do this and you do that and we'll just coexist. You don't become a great parent by just managing your children. You don't just throw money at them and become a great parent. You become a great parent by engaging your children every day, by taking them to church, their ball games, their recitals, by eating meals together, enjoying family time together, by providing direction and security and discipline and love and teaching them about priorities and on and on. It's the same thing when it comes to the Christian life. No one lives a great Christian life just by accident. It doesn't happen as a result of a part-time commitment to spiritual growth or service. It doesn't happen by giving Jesus the leftovers of your time or your attention. It happens when you make a radical commitment to following Jesus in every part of your life, a radical commitment to doing His will in every part of your life. It's not easy. It's never easy, but it's the life that Jesus calls us to, and it's the life that Jesus commands. I want to help you see that in this passage of Scripture. I told you the entire passage is Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 34. I want to show you in those verses four different things that often get in between us and accepting a challenge or making a commitment to living a greater life than what we're experiencing today. As I told you, we'll just look at the first two this morning, and the next time we come together, we'll look at the second two. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down the first one next to number one. The first thing that often gets between us or stands in the way, rather, of embracing the greater life that Jesus calls us to is what we'll just call empty promises. Let me set the context for this passage of Scripture. Jesus is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a massive crowd has gathered there around him. No surprise about that. The very last thing we read last week in verses 15 and 16 is that Jesus was healing people just with a word. They were People were bringing the demon-possessed and the sick, and he was healing them with just a word. And so a massive crowd came out to see Jesus, to help him, to have him help them with their needs and to just see what he was going to do next. And so Jesus, concerned about the massive crowd, gives orders to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side from the one shore to the other. If you're traveling with me to the Holy Land in a couple of weeks, you're going to spend time around the Sea of Galilee, and it's going to be one of the most unforgettable experiences of your life. But before they got in the boat and went to the other side, there were some men who decided to come forward and press the issue of commitment with Jesus. Two of them are recorded here in Matthew's account of the story. The first one was a teacher of the law. If you're reading from a different version of the Bible this morning, maybe your Bible describes him as a scribe. It's the same thing. But a teacher of the law comes and says, teacher, to Jesus, he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That can't be surprising because this man had just heard Jesus speak with wisdom and authority that he had never heard before. He had just seen Jesus do supernatural miracles that he'd never seen anyone do before. And so in a rush of emotion, he comes to Jesus. He said, I'll follow you anywhere, which sounds good. But if I were to put Jesus's response in my own words... Jesus looked at this man and said, 
Are you sure about that? Because Jesus wanted this man to understand that while he was a teacher who, at least at that time, had a large following, and while he had the ability to perform signs and wonders and miracles, there was no life of comfort in his plans. In fact, Jesus had fewer physical comforts than many animals. That's why he said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so in this conversation, Jesus is wanting to make one thing perfectly clear to this man. He wants to make it clear that it's not easy to follow him. It's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. There's no easy path. You can't read your Bible in particular, the Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus' life and come to any other conclusion because there's no place in the Bible, not one single place, where we're given any indication that following Jesus is easy. I could point you to a lot of different verses or passages that prove that, but let me just use this one. I don't think there's anything better than what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. I'll put those words on the screen. One day Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The part of that verse that has always stood out to me is when Jesus says, take up his cross daily, because I've told you before that the simplest way to understand what that means is that when you follow Jesus, you make the commitment to die to yourself every single day. Anyone who would have been listening to Jesus when he said those words would have clearly understood what he was talking about because the cross was a symbol of death in Jesus' day. So Jesus is saying, if you make the decision to follow me, then you have to make the conscious decision to die to the life that you desire every single day so that you can accept and embrace the life that I call you to. Let me be as practical and direct as possible in telling you what that means. That means if you decide that you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be a follower of Jesus that you make being like him in all things the highest priority of your life. It means that you place every decision and every dream of your life through the filter of his word because the highest goal of your life is to glorify Jesus in everything that you do. And it means that you walk through your life, I'm talking about every single step of your life, as if the literal physical Jesus were walking next to you. So this man that we're told is a teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, basically, are you sure about that? Because here's what you need to know before you make that kind of a statement. There's nothing easy or comfortable about following me. And following me means that you give up your life in a way that can make you look foolish to the rest of the world. So don't make a promise that you can't keep. If you're taking notes, write down next to number two. The second thing that I see here in the text, not just empty promises, but weak excuses. When we look back in our text to remind us about the second would-be follower of Jesus. In verses 21 and 22, this is what happens immediately after Jesus has that conversation with the teacher of the law, who I just imagine then just slipped off into the crowd, never to be seen or heard from again. But verse 21 picks it up and says, Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. 
Now, let's just all acknowledge that those are some pretty harsh-sounding words from Jesus because it sounds like the man is just basically saying, Lord, I want to follow you, but give me a couple of days to take care of my deceased father's funeral arrangements. After that, I'll be back. But that's not what's happening here. This was about the responsibility in Jesus' day of grown children to care for and provide for their aging parents all the way up until their death. So this man wasn't saying, listen, Lord, I want to follow you, but I need a couple of days first. He was saying, Lord, I want to follow you, but not today, because today the truth is I have other greater priorities. And Jesus' basic response was, that's not how it works. Because when you follow me, you make your relationship with me your highest priority the highest priority of your life. See, it was clear that Jesus recognized this man had some level of conviction. He was feeling some level of conviction to follow him more closely, but he had an excuse for why it couldn't become the highest priority of his life in that moment. But that's exactly what Jesus expects from us when we choose to follow him. I hope we all understand that this morning. He expects when we make that decision that he literally becomes the highest priority in our lives. Let me say it in really clear and unmistakable terms. Jesus will not share our love for him with anyone or anything else, not even the people that are closest to us in the world, our families. That means if you're faced with a choice of loyalty to Jesus or of the choice of loyalty to your father, your mother, your husband, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, your children, whoever it might be, that means you choose Jesus. Look at these words on the screen. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. One day Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now again, those are some incredibly harsh-sounding words, some unreasonable-sounding words from Jesus, but you have to understand that the hate that Jesus is talking about here is actually just a lesser love. And what Jesus wants is his followers, his disciples, to cultivate such a strong devotion to him that their attachment to everything else in the world, every other thing in the world, seems like hatred by comparison. And so I'll say it again. If you're faced with a choice between loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to your father or your mother or your husband or your wife or your brothers or your sisters or your children, you choose Jesus. If you're faced with a choice between your own interests and the interests of Jesus, you choose Jesus. That's not my interpretation of the Scriptures. That's literally what Jesus says. He's telling us, or rather, he's not telling us that we can't love others or make other people a priority in our lives. He's not telling us that we can't have other interests in our lives. What he is telling us is that he needs to be our greatest interest and our highest priority. And all that reminds us of what we said from the beginning. It's not easy to be a follower of Jesus. There's no easy path. You know, there, there are some things in my life that I struggle with from time to time when it comes to being a pastor. I'm not talking about issues of faith. I'm not talking about questions of faith. 
I'm talking about questions related to my responsibility to be God's spokesman. And in particular, the question that I have sometimes is, am I communicating clearly to the people who hear me just how demanding Jesus is and just what he's asking for when he says the words, follow me? And one of the reasons why I have that question at times is because it's clear in the world that we live in today that there is a cultural or a man-made Christianity that makes it appear that it's easy to follow Jesus when it's not. And somehow, in many modern churches today, and Mount Pleasant is certainly not exempt from this, but in many modern churches today, the Christian life for many people has been reduced to a comfortable system of beliefs about Jesus rather than an uncomfortable encounter with Jesus. And what we're seeing in this text, and it's just so brief, is the reality of that uncomfortable encounter. Two men saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus basically saying, are you sure about that? There's only one conclusion that we can draw. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, you don't share the crown with him when it comes to who is the king of your life. The crown belongs to him and him alone. And everything in your life becomes secondary to your devotion to him. So here's the question for myself this morning. And it's not just this morning. It's a question I've asked myself multiple times throughout the week leading up to this weekend. Is that true for me? Can I honestly say that everything in my life is secondary to my devotion to Christ? And here's my question for you. Is that true for you? I mean, if you took a long, hard look at your life this morning, can you say that everything in your life is secondary to your devotion to Christ? Because that's what he's asking for from you and from me. Here's how we can know the answer to the question. We do exactly what I said. We find that moment of that time when we take this, this long, hard, fearlessly honest look at our lives, and in particular our priorities, and it's not hard to know what your priorities are. If you want to know what the priorities of my life are, all you have to do is look at my calendar and my bank account. That's all you have to do. Those two things make it clear. We take an honest look at our priorities, and then we ask ourselves this question, where does my devotion to Christ fall on this list? Because what Jesus asks for is everything. I want you to pray with me this morning. Thank you, Lord.